are entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrats continue their unfair and obviously partisan impeachment nonsense. There's also a lot of anger right now about what the president has done in Syria from left and right. I'll break that down for you. And does testosterone have anything to do with masculinity? A question for the ages coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. The impeachment inquiry. Stay updated, stay informed with up-to-the-minute breaking news and analysis. There's only one place for it all. CNN.com slash impeachment. Only one place for it all. Impeachment Central over at CNN. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Look, I, I like that the left, the libs, they're just being honest about this stuff now. I, I prefer it that way. I prefer that they would just show us that the impeachment of the president of the United States is a game to them. It's a sports event, really. Uh, They give us all these talking points. They whine constantly about the need to protect our sacred institutions, the sanctity of our democracy. And then it's, hey, let's put the impeachment scoreboard up on the screen. Let's see if we can impeach this president. Nancy Pelosi changed her Twitter avatar last night so that it would show her standing up at a meeting with the president of the United States on, at least allegedly, theoretically, to discuss Syria. And she was pointing her finger at him. And Trump said that she was being crazy. That doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, The Democrats have have been quite crazy all along here. My, my favorite part about this meeting, keep in mind now, everything that we're discussing about Syria is also very much affected by the Democrats' dishonest impeachment push. And everything that we're discussing about impeachment right now is also being you know, added to by the whole Syria fiasco, where you have a tremendous amount of dishonesty in the discussion uh, from people all across the national security apparatus, including a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans. I think some of them have just forgotten the real context for what is happening in Syria. I think they don't really understand or aren't remembering clearly what happened in that country and what is likely to happen in that country if we were to stay. But these things now are all very much tied together. My my favorite moment, though, because as you know, you come to the Buck Sexton show to learn, to laugh and to crush the commies. And my favorite part of the exchange uh, between Trump and the Democrats who came to meet him at the White House was when you had uh, (laughs) Chuck Schumer uh, claim. Well, let's actually can we hear from Chuck himself on this? Better than me doing an impression of him. Play five, please. How can we let this happen? They didn't have any good answer. This is appalling. The president had no plan, no real plan for containing ISIS other than relying on the Syrians and the Turks. Then why did we spend a decade, billions of dollars, and lost lives in trying to curtail ISIS if on a phone call, on a whim, the president is going to undo all of that and turn this over to the Turks and the Syrians? 
I would also say one other thing. He was insulting, particularly to the speaker. She kept her cool completely. But he called her a third-rate politician. He said that the there are communists involved and you guys might like that. I mean, this was not a dialogue. It was sort of a diatribe, a nasty diatribe, not focused on the facts, particularly the fact of how to curtail ISIS, a terrorist organization that aims to hurt the United States in our homeland. Oh, the best part of that by far is Trump apparently saying that because there are commies involved here, you commies, meaning the Democrats, might like that. PKK, as I've told you, is a, a what you'd consider an old school 70s and 80s Marxist separatist organization, a terrorist organization. And so Trump worked in a little a jab about Democrats being commies. I'm sorry. That's kind of funny. Not as funny as tweeting out a Nickelback clip with look at this photograph because Joe Biden was golfing with a Burisma executive and Hunter Biden after telling us that he had never had a conversation about it. There had been no discussion about any of that whatsoever. Yeah, I guess they just talked about their talked about their best uh, putters or whatever. I don't know what people talk about in golf. But there was another part of this discussion, that, or rather this Chuck Schumer monologue that I thought was uh, worth noting. President Obama and just, you know, the, the president of the United States uh, did, in fact, tweet out this morning a quote from uh, from me. And the quote, it's, it's a quote of my tweet. And here's what the leader, leader of the free world put out on his Twitter account this morning. About 500,000 human beings were killed in Syria while Barack Obama was president and leading for a political settlement to that civil war. Media has been more outraged in the last 72 hours over Syria policy than they were at any point during seven years of slaughter. Buck Sexton. So that would be that would be me. Uh, This is the point that we have to remember as we discuss all of this, as we discuss everything that's going on right now in Syria. The Obama administration made a, a decision not to put any U.S. boots on the ground in Syria. That was their that was their big contribution in foreign policy. And in fact, when they were challenged on this issue, they fell back on the mantra. And it wasn't it was actually a more uh, profane version of this. But don't do stupid stuff. Do you remember that? And this came after that. That was on Syria. Don't do stupid stuff. That's the Obama administration. Even Hillary Clinton herself. Hello. She came out and said that that's not an organizing principle for foreign policy, a gentle way, because remember, she thought she was going to be the next president of the United States when she was secretary of state saying that stuff, uh, a gentle way of saying that the Obama team just thinks that they can dress up inaction as strategic brilliance. So they did nothing while Syria not only became the ISIS uh, hotbed that then enslaved a few million people for years, Mass rapes, mass executions, torture, attempted genocide against the Kurds. All that happened on Obama's watch. And it happened right after Obama decided that we weren't going to. Remember, we had already broken Iraq. You you know, you break it, you buy it. Right. That was the basic. I think that was the Colin Powell ism. If you break it, you buy it. So we had already broken Iraq. We decided we were going to do regime change in that country. So we were committed. Well, once you've done that, you're committed, right? We're not committed, although I'll get into this the same way 
on Syria. But if the Obama administration didn't do anything worthwhile to stop the rise of ISIS. In fact, they went as far, uh, the, the ISIS fighters swept through Mosul, a very important city in northern Iraq on the Tigris River uh, that was the gateway to Syria for, I mean, for, well, gateway to Iraq for countless suicide bombers from Syria during the U.S., the major portion of U.S. military uh, occupation of Iraq. And they got within, what, 30 or 40 miles or so of Erbil in Kurdistan? And at that point, when the Islamic State was threatening to completely overrun Kurdish cities, which would have led to mass atrocities, execution, total destabilization of already shaky Iraq at the time, then Obama goes, all right, we'll do an air campaign, but we're going to do it really slow and a lot of allies. Let's bring in the allies. They'll do a lot of the fighting for us. No, they won't. They'll do a lot of the the heavy lifting from the sky. No, they won't. And all of a sudden, President Trump takes over. The Islamic State goes from a global threat that's that's supporting and propagating ideology that is radicalizing people all over the world, including here in America, you know, like Omar Mateen, the Pulse nightclub shooter and the San Bernardino shooters and jihadists who see the Islamic State as a clarion call to arms. That's all going on. And then Trump comes into office and says, I got an idea. Let's just crush. Let's just crush ISIS. Let's just do it. And let's work with whoever can get the job done on the ground. In this case, it was the Kurds. And after that destruction of the Islamic State, the eradication of the uh, leadership in or at least chasing them out of Raqqa, if not taking them out, the president has decided, "Okay, well, now we have the issue not so much of defeating ISIS as just a counterterrorism campaign, but of Syria overall. What do we do in Syria? What is our end state goal? You have a lot of people who are saying things right now that they think sound very smart. Like, well, we, we should have negotiated. Negotiated what exactly? That all the regional partners would just destroy the Islamic State for us? We've been trying to negotiate that for a long time. We cannot trust the Turks. We cannot trust the Russians. We cannot trust the Iranians. We cannot trust the Syrians. So who exactly are we supposed to negotiate with? Now, I'm also seeing a lot of complaints, a lot of uh, criticism that the president's plan is too hasty. And there are people who are saying that that means in and of itself that the idea behind it is wrong. I disagree. And I know I'm kind of a lone voice these days. There's not a lot of people that are taking my side on this one, including on the right, we have to stop justifying continued U.S. military presence in countries where we do not have an immediate national security interest and where things are going to continue in a state of uh, tension, a state of constant fighting, or just get a lot worse and deteriorate. Where where have we been able to draw down successfully? And as I said, people point to Iraq that's a different case. People who point to Afghanistan now, I think, have greater have a, a, a stronger point to make because in Afghanistan, we've been there for, what, almost uh, two decades now. And every year it's, well, conditions on the ground aren't good enough. All right, well, maybe it's not about conditions on the ground being good enough. Maybe it's the mission is over. Time to come home. Or just accept that we're going to have permanent military presence in active conflict zones, different than having a base in a country at peace. Um, and that that's going to be our foreign policy forever. 
which does feel a bit like empire, doesn't it? Let's all be honest about that. I am confident that Assad's days are numbered. The world will not waver. Assad must go. We both agree that Assad needs to go. It is just further evidence that Assad has to go. He is no longer legitimate and that he needs to go. For the sake of the Syrian people, the time has come for him to set, step aside. Assad is on his way out. We all need to be thinking about the day after Assad. Assad has lost all legitimacy that his time has passed. President uh, al-Assad has lost legitimacy that he needs to step down. As I have said many times before, Assad has lost all legitimacy and Assad must go. And he has stated unequivocally that Assad has lost all legitimacy and cannot conceivably continue to govern. Assad has lost all legitimacy to govern. We've also been clear that Assad has lost all legitimacy to lead. What we've done is organize the international community saying Assad has to go. Look at all those Democrats, the experts of the Obama, Obama himself, the experts of the Obama administration telling you that Assad must go. Oh, but but it's not a question of regime change in Syria. We, we don't have to stay until there's regime change. Let me tell you this. Without regime change, the only real alternative is what is happening now, which is we say, all right, we're out. Yeah, we can still exert pressure. We can still try to tell whatever you want in Turkey as an ally, what, however you want to describe it. Stop going after the Kurds. Stop making things more difficult for everybody in in the region because of your own domestic political considerations, i.e. you hate that your people hate the PKK for understandable reasons. We don't want to be in a position where we just keep on waiting and don't accept that we're waiting for something we're never going to do, which is try to topple Assad. We have no interest in that. In fact, one thing, one lesson from the Syrian civil war that people don't seem to understand or the experts, I should say, haven't taken away from it. What comes after Assad? What would be in place of Assad? We're so sure that it would not be something along the lines of a Taliban in Syria, Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda, something like that. No. Islamic State, none of that is a concern for us. What are we talking about here? We weren't able to get the job done without the help of the Kurds because there was such a strong jihadist element in Syria. And one of the problems we ran into was trying to arm Syrian Arabs to fight against the Islamic State. Guess what? They couldn't do it without. They, now, there is about a half, I think, or so of the Syrian defense forces are Sunni Arabs, and then about half of them are Kurds, uh, the SDF. Point here being, folks, we only have so many options. And the people who are right now the loudest voices on how what Trump is doing is terrible sat by and did nothing. In fact, in the case of Obama, really worse than nothing because he declared a red line and put the full force of the U.S. government behind that red line, said, if you gas your own people, Assad, we're coming after you. Assad uh, Assad gassed Syrians, nothing happened. Nothing. Got a speech from John Kerry. Oh, my. I'm sure all the terrorists were frightened beyond belief. So just remember that the people, the the Ben Rhodeses and the John Kerrys and the Barack Obamas, uh, they were wrong on Syria in every respect 
every every day, every major issue. And now they're the ones that are telling you, oh, Trump is a disaster. He's ruining Syria. I mean, people coming on the coming up in the Democrat debate and claiming that the, the slaughter in Syria is Trump's fault. OK, if you want to say that Trump's removal of about 50 U.S. troops, that's what we're talking about here, by the way, from one area of northern Syria has led to dozens, maybe scores, I don't know, maybe maybe a few hundred casualties at this point. You, you could make that claim. But then you also have to understand that the Obama administration sat by and, in fact, worse in a situation where hundreds of thousands of people were killed. International community being led by Obama, leader of the free world, wasn't able to stop it at all. In fact, it kept getting worse for the first few years when Obama was supposedly handling this and bringing us to a political settlement. But of course, it was the policy of the Obama administration that it was regime change. By people say, oh, don't talk about Obama. Yeah, because they don't want to discuss what happened in Syria. Trump showed up, defeated ISIS, and was like, I'm gone. What had happened up to that point? How did, how did ISIS even take all the territory that it did become the force that it was? Because well, Obama said it was the JV team, remember? JV team. Nothing serious there. Well, it turned out he was quite wrong. The same people, though, who brought you leading from behind in Libya, another disastrous regime change war. Let's let's topple that regime. Wanted to do this in some way in Syria, weren't able to make it actually happen. And now they walk around telling the president that the voters who put him in power to stop doing this regime change military uh, military policy in the Middle East, that we're they're supposed to get ignored now by Trump. The bottom line is the reckless decision of this president sends a very clear message to those friends and to those partners. And that is the American handshake doesn't matter. That we won't be there for you when you need us. And that's a dangerous message and it'll make it much harder for us to recruit partners, recruit allies, and work with people going forward to secure our country. Even after all you have seen, ISIS prisoners freed all the humanitarian disaster, you don't have any regret for giving Erdogan the green light to, to invade? I didn't give him a green light. Well, did you tell him? That's did he the same you? thing as you just, uh, you know, when you make a statement like that, it's so deceptive. Uh, just the opposite of a green light. First of all, we had virtually no soldiers there. They were mostly gone. Just a tiny little group. And uh, they would have been in harm's way. You have a massive army on the other side of the border. But more importantly, I didn't give him a green light. And if anybody saw the letter which can be released very easily if you'd like. I could certainly release it. But I wrote a letter right after that conversation, a very powerful letter. Uh, it was never given a green light. They've been wanting to do that for years. And frankly, they've been fighting for many, many years. And when you ask a question like that, it's very deceptive, John. It's almost as deceptive as you showing all of the bombings taking place in Syria. And it turned out that the bombing that you showed on television took place in Kentucky. So, you know, and I'm not even sure that ABC apologized for that, but certainly it was a terrible thing. I'm looking at this. I'd say, well, that's pretty bad. And it was in Kentucky. It wasn't in Syria. So I don't know what you're going to do about that. But I think ABC owes an apology. This is where President Trump is really at his best. When the media is going after him, it's, it's obviously uh, it's obviously partisan. I mean, that was a speech disguised as a question. Now, how could you do something so terrible? I think that's John Carl uh, at ABC. Uh, or I don't know what the guy's name is, John something or other. And it points out that ABC was so desperate to run catastrophic footage of what has happened in northern Syria that they actually ran a 
an explosives demonstration from a gun range in Kentucky on their biggest news shows. That's a, that's a pretty big whoopsie, isn't it? Why would they make such a big mistake like that? Um, there also was a mistake in a readout, I think it was from either the Washington Post or the New York Times, where Trump said that they, they basically came out of the meeting saying that Trump claimed that Syria is not our problem. But what he said was actually that the Syrian border, unlike our border, is you know not, not our problem. It, they, just, they get things wrong all the time that bash Trump because they're so desperate to, desperate to bash the president. And they think that anything that bashes the president is inherently good to report, even if you have to correct yourself. It serves the purpose. You know, this is the retweet and then follow-up tweet phenomenon of, you know, Trump said something that's literally worse than Hitler. And then, oh, actually, Trump didn't say that. And the first one gets 50,000 likes and the second one retweets and the second one gets five. This is how propaganda works. You know, the correction, the editor's note doesn't get anything near what the initial allegations and accusations get. Uh, and this is a phenomenon. Did you ever see this in the Obama years? How many major corrections did the New York Times, the Washington Post have to run when Barack Obama was president on and specifically on items, not just that dealt with his administration, but that were damaging to Obama? How many times did that happen? Oh, the very smart journos want to tell us that that's a coincidence, I suppose. That's supposed to be a coincidence. I, I think not. But now let's just dig a little more into that. And I, I want to get into the impeachment stuff, too, and Pelosi. And this whole thing's such a sham and such a joke. It's, it's out of control. Uh, but even people who are, who are crazy and very dishonest can be quite dangerous. And one of the great ironies here is that the voices in the Democratic Party who have been warning us about the threats to our democracy because of Trump for years now, uh, they are the ones that are actually threats to our most sacred institutions. They're the ones who did not accept the results of the 2016 election, did not accept the results of the 2000 election either, by the way, and are preparing themselves to invalidate the 2020 election, which Trump, I am very confident, is going to win, even if they impeach him. That's why there's this desperation to stop him, to do something, to sully him, to ruin him before the American people can make yet another decision. And that desperation is evident not just in the impeachment frenzy, but also in the way they're talking about Syria. A, a few a few dozen U.S. soldiers. How many U.S. casualties have there been as a result of the move of troops from uh, northern Syria? How many? The answer is zero. Thank God. But the answer is zero. Okay. So... We were supposed to do what we're supposed to stay and and stay in exactly the positions we're in until the Kurds say that it's that, that they've worked out a deal with Turkey. Well, the Turks will break that deal with the Kurds the moment that we don't have troops there. I, I think that's if we're just going to be realistic about this. And, and maybe I do need to write the article or, or get the word out there after every military conflict. We have made that we as a country have made the decision that. There's only so much we can do, and you know some people are on the wrong side of the dividing line. Some allies are going to have to fend or fight for themselves, and that's just the way that it is. After every single conflict that we fought in in, in memory, um, World War II, Vietnam, Korean War, Persian Gulf War One, go through all these conflicts. I, I would want to ask the Obama administration officials because remember that they're very, they're now the ones that are trying to. Uh, bring down Trump based on both the Ukraine gate, which is just a replay of Russia gate, Ukraine gate thing. And now on his decision to, as commander in chief, withdraw troops from one area of a battlefield. 
a very small number of troops. They're acting, they are responding to this as though it is of Pearl Harbor-esque proportions. They are pretending like moving, I've seen the report as, as about 50 is what I've seen, and that there'll be a thousand. Our troop levels in Syria are down half in about the last year. That's the right decision. We do not want a few thousand soldiers in Syria because you know what happens, my friends? The few thousand soldiers, when, when another administration comes along or the political reality changes for a moment, all of a sudden it's, oh, there's something terrible happening in Syria. We need to make it 5,000. Now we need to make it 10,000. In fact, let's go with 50,000 troops there. And now we're walking the streets of Damascus or Homs or Hama, our soldiers. And then we're being told we're occupiers and we're having our best and bravest Americans ambush and getting blown up by IEDs, walking the streets of a country where the people either aren't sure if they want them there or largely want them to leave. Even though they're there to protect them. And if they weren't there, there'd probably be a genocide. But people are, you know, idiots and they, they don't understand and they just, they're, xen they're xenophobic. They have their own cultural animosities toward us. I mean, this... I, this is what we've seen. How many times does it have to play out in the Middle East before we say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore? Why can't we learn the lesson? I was in Iraq. I was in Afghanistan. I had access to what the top people in the country were seeing. That's what I was reading on a regular basis. I was seeing what was going on at a, at a high level. And we just, we, we refused to learn the lesson. I, I don't know what else to say about this. And people who are going to claim, oh, but the Islamic State will be resurgent. That's always going to be. That will always be possible. Al-Qaeda, ISIS operate active cells that are currently plotting against the United States in countries all over the world. Probably a few dozen of them if you counted them all up. Are we supposed to just put a few thousand troops in those countries too? We're, we're just going to keep this thing going where we're going to fight and fight and fight all over the world? Why? Why? I mean, look, look at the the willingness and the and by the way, the media's willingness to justify sitting on the sidelines largely in Syria. What wasn't entirely true. We tried some training of Syrian forces, a total debacle. Obama administration, the Pentagon uh, completely fell down on the job with that. It's just true. Uh, there was no coherent policy to stop the Islamic State in Syria under the Obama administration. There was a total uh, acceptance of Obama's dithering because he didn't want to be Bush. That was the basis of everything. He didn't want to be Bush. And now you have Trump saying, you know what? I don't want to be Bush either. And Democrats are more or less all screaming in unison. How dare you not want to be Bush? Only Obama gets to make that decision. You don't get to make that decision. You're supposed to just continue what Republicans have done for decades now. Get us involved in a foreign military expedition that the moment the casualties start mounting, the moment that we are pulled into frontline shooting, which would happen in Syria at some point if we stayed, I am very confident of that. The moment that happens, then the Democrats say, you don't care about these troops, putting them in harm's way. These people, the voices that are criticizing Trump from the left on Syria are absolutely feckless. This is all about attacking the president. They don't care about Syria. If they cared about Syria, I think they would have done more while a half a million people were being butchered there. Oh, Obama didn't want to use too much air power, though. Civilian casualties look bad for him, you see. Didn't want to hurt his poll numbers. 
But now they care so much about Syria. Now they care so much. You want to talk about the Kurds and the, and the losses that the Kurds have taken? What would the losses have been if Trump hadn't come in and said, we are going to help you defeat an existential threat within your own country? The Islamic State hates the Kurds. So we help them defeat and, and beat back a, an enemy that wants their extinction. And now, if we don't stay there forever and protect them forever, this is, a, this is the worst thing that's been done by the Trump administration. This is the thing that I'm seeing so many Republicans break ranks on this. I just, we just we won't learn the lesson. I don't know what else to say. I don't know how many times we can go through this. You know, you can tell me, OK, well, we look at the troops we have in Afghanistan. To that, I would say, first of all, we've lost thousands of soldiers uh, killed in action in Afghanistan. We've lost tens of thousands of soldiers wounded uh, in or had tens of thousands of soldiers wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what's the big benefit? What do we have today in Afghanistan that we didn't have in October of 2002? Or let's say October of 2003 to give us a little more leeway. The answer is not a whole lot. We have a lot more casualties on our side since then. Billions and billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars spent for this. A tremendous amount of energy and focus from the United States government, the United States military to try to make things better in Afghanistan. Has it worked? Oh, but if we leave, the whole country is going to crumble. Well, you could have made the same argument in 2003. So what have we gotten by staying? In Iraq, it's a slightly different situation because the government has more competent forces. We did regime change there as well. But we should leave there too. And by the way, I think we're going to leave there relatively soon. Something that people are not paying attention to. We either change or we don't. We either decide it's time to break the wheel or we just let it keep on spinning. Trump is trying to break it. He's trying to say we're not going to continue on this way. Uh, is he the most eloquent when he speaks about this? Is he the one that makes the case in the uh, words and the, in, the, in the tones and with the illusions that you would expect from somebody who's deeply versed in the Middle East and foreign policy? Of course not. But those people from the more uh, fancy sounding Kissingerian school of foreign policy have not known what the heck they are doing for the last 20 years. My entire post-collegiate life I've been listening to people tell me about what's going to happen in the Middle East who are supposed to be the smartest and they don't know what they're talking about. Or rather, they're wrong. We'll see if Trump can stick to this. By the way, I don't, I'm not even confident that we're going to be able to get the last thousand out of Syria. There's such a desire, such a, a need, it seems, for a lot of people to keep soldiers, I think one of the one of the concerns they have is if we didn't keep soldiers there, and if all of a sudden you had a circumstance where the Russians, the Iranians, the Syrians, they were, it was left to them to figure out what's going to happen in this part of the world, and it didn't create some calamity that, oh, what are we going to do now in America? Maybe there would have to also be some reflection from the people that pushed. The war in Iraq that pushed the regime change in Libya that have pushed all kinds of U.S. military adventures uh, around the world, interventions around the world. Um, was it worth it? Did they know what they were doing? Was their judgment good? I think the answer is that they can't they can't stomach 
Trump changing things in Syria, because just like with China, where we were told a trade war is crazy, how could Trump do something so and say, no, it turns out that he's right to confront China and that we were getting scammed. And now that perception has shifted. What if we just leave it to other people to figure out what's going on in a country in the Middle East that has been the site of tremendous bloodshed and instability? What if it's not going to be a place that we try to rebuild after after we have rooted out a terrorist group and shattered it? Hmm. If that works, there'd be a lot of questions about other things, a lot of questions that people in D.C. don't want to answer. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, I believe is and I've it's not comfortable to say this about a president, but he is a complete failure, a complete failure as commander in chief. It is most reckless and incompetent commander in chief we have ever had. And he's failed repeatedly. You know, he for he, he doesn't understand. Part of it is he's just incompetent. No, I really mean it. He's just incompetent. But he repeatedly fails to foresee the consequences of his impulses. And they're impulses that he has. Not based on any theory. And when the utterly predictable occurs, he seems not to care. He blames somebody else. It's always somebody else's fault. The buck never stops at his desk, in his view. First of all, the buck never stops. That's right. Second of all, some of you are groaning. Some of you are high-fiving. Depends. Uh, Joe Biden is an expert in failure and bad judgment. So I do think we should at least give him credit for that. He has deep expertise in being wrong on foreign policy. Every major foreign policy decision that he has been involved in, he's been wrong for the last 40 years. He's just wrong all the time. Every idea he has is bad. Every judgment call he makes is wrong. That's Joe Biden for you. And notice how he just says Trump is a failure as commander in chief. How? Where's where's the failure? How does his failure as commander in chief say stack up with Obama, who decides for political considerations at home to escalate the war in Afghanistan dramatically? Send our Marines down into Hellman. Tell them they got to clear all this stuff out. Fight against the Taliban. We start taking more casualties. Oh, by the way, the media didn't really report on this very much, did they? More casualties under Obama in Afghanistan than at any time under Bush, including when we were routing the Taliban out of Afghanistan. Nobody seemed to really care very much in the media because, you know, the anti-war movement under Obama just disappeared. And we're told that Trump is the failure as commander in chief. What did Obama achieve with all that? Not looking like not looking like he was a wimpy commander in chief. That's all that was. It was about perception of President Obama. People died. A lot of our people died because Obama didn't want to look weak and didn't have a strategy. You're going to hear the president say we walked out. We were offended deeply by his treatment of the Speaker of the House of Representatives. The president, in my view, has created a crisis in the Middle East, a crisis that undermines the world's confidence in America. Uh, This crisis required a rational, reasonable discussion between those of us who have been elected by the American people to set policy. Unfortunately, the meeting deteriorated into a diatribe, as Leader Schumer has said, uh, and a very offensive uh, 
accusations being made by the President of the United States. I have served with six presidents. I have been in many, many, many meetings like this. Never have I seen a president treat so disrespectfully a co-equal branch of the government of the United States. All right, welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Uh, man, the stuff that I have to sit through, and I'm sorry that sometimes you have to hear some of these loony Democrats doing their thing here. Uh, let's Let's just all be very clear about this. For any Democrat, any I mean any Democrat, to make claims that the president of the United States, who is routinely called uh, a traitor, an imbecile, a false president, a pretender to the throne, so to speak, a, a criminal, uh, even a rapist sometimes, by Democrats, for any Democrat to say, oh, but he's being so mean to us. I'm I'm sorry I can't I can't stomach it I just I can't do it can't do it <sighs> oh that's the big problem that Pelosi wasn't being respected enough in that meeting what was the meeting really for they had already held a vote in the House to and and a lot of Republicans went along with look I'm I'm out on a pretty small island here I'm out on the you know I think that Trump has to just just gut it out and push it through and get it done here by getting our troops out of uh, out of Syria. I, I, I thought that a year ago. I thought that ever as soon as ISIS has been eliminated as a territorial caliphate, time to go. Time to go as fast as is pra- as possible, which has been part of what this delay is. But people don't want they don't want that to happen. They don't want them to go. Keep in mind, we still have troops in Iraq. We still have total air dominance in this era if we want it. Uh, you know, we can still assist and arm the Kurds even further than we already have. There's a lot of things we can do without U.S. troops on the ground. And people who say, oh, but we're not taking casualties there yet and there's not that many troops. Right. That could change. The presence of U.S. soldiers in a conflict like this is a very uh, easy and open invitation for a lot of lawmakers and a lot of policy decision makers to say we're going to do more and i just think that that's a risk we should not take and remember i played all those democrats for you who were saying that regime change was that that was the goal of the obama administration they were hoping that the the anti-assad forces would effectively do the job and then maybe we'd be able to create some kind of regional coalition to do this sort of multilateral consensus building for a new democratic reality in syria blah 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 ain't gonna happen it wasn't gonna happen then it's definitely not gonna happen now uh, but back to this uh, this this pelosi meeting now, this was a stunt I, I think that this should be clear to all of us this was a this was a stunt the president of the united states was sitting down with Democrats who have already made up their mind on Syria, have already made up their mind about the president, have made up their mind about impeachment. I mean, all, all this, uh, this whole process of impeachment, which, by the way, it, it's sort of a faux legal proceeding. And we can talk more about some of the specifics here, but there's not really much of a of a framework for it. The Congress decides what the processes will be because it's not a criminal proceeding. It's not. This is just all over. But there's a a political presentation. There's supposed to be some 
reasonable safeguards in the process that it, so a president will not just get railroaded. And the Democrats are insisting very openly, very blatantly insisting on removing any of those safeguards so that this just becomes the weaponization of what is what should be a very last resort of the Congress. They're weaponizing that last resort against the president. And, and I mean, using the process itself as a weapon. It's not even just the presentation of information that is disadvantageous to Donald Trump. It's also, oh, let's make sure that the only stuff that gets out there is what we want people to hear. Uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy sees this, I believe, for what it is. Producer Mark, if you would, we'd like to hear from the good the good congressman. Play 10. I see a pattern of behavior with uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She storms out of another meeting, trying to make it unproductive. The other Democrats stayed and actually had a very productive meeting with the general from the Joint Chiefs, with the Secretary of Defense. And the president in this meeting stated what his number one goal is, to make sure America is safe. We talked with the general, listened to the plan. Very productive between the Democrats who actually stayed in the meeting. So some Democrats could stay. But Pelosi had to storm out and then used a photo. This is just a photo op for her. This was a hashtag resistance. Look at me. Look at me moment. It's all it was. Pelosi knew that there wasn't going to be anything else from this. I also saw that some claimed the president had called her a I think it was a, uh, a third grade politician. But a th- or, or sorry, is it third rate or third grade? They've said both third rate. Yeah, but initially somebody said third grade. I'm telling you, that was what they that was what they thought. It's kind of like Trump, the big league or big Lee phenomenon of 2016. Some of us, it's like those uh, those photos you see where some think the dress is gold and some think it's uh, whatever the other. What was the other color? Blue. Is it gold? Thank you, producer Mark. Is it gold or is it blue? Did you hear big Lee or big league with Trump? Someone thought Pelosi said third. Anyway. She's I mean, to say she's a she's not a third rate politician. That's not fair because she's been the most powerful Democrat other than Obama of really the last generation. Uh, She's a third rate intellect, perhaps, and uh, not a very ethical or honest person. But she's managed to just wield power in that town uh, because I think that she's shameless and I think that she'll do whatever she has to do. So in that sense, she's really a classic politician. Uh, that's what we always think of as politicians. I mean, I, I grew up, I feel like we've lost this. I grew up with a deep skepticism of elected officials. That was just what was instilled in me. I don't know if it was by uh, my family mostly or just, but I always thought uh, so politicians are liars is a thing that I used to hear all the time. And now I only hear that, oh, Trump is the liar. All the Democrats are so honest. Sure they are. Sure they are. But uh Pelosi stormed out of the meeting because she wanted a, a photo op opportunity. And now we have the continuation of the most dishonest process imaginable. What, what the Democrats have done in crafting, they won't put it to a full House vote. They won't, they won't open this up and give access to Republican members of the House who you would think should know. If what the president did is so bad, wouldn't Democrats want Republicans to know what's going on? So that maybe they could cross party lines and vote too. Otherwise, this just becomes a big exercise in partisan gamesmanship, which is, of course, what it is. But it makes it so obvious. 
it couldn't be any more clear that that's exactly what we are dealing with. And so with that, I look then at the process itself today. You, you have, uh, it's set up as though you were, let's say you were in a criminal trial. This is not a criminal trial, which is important to remember. But if you were in a criminal trial and the prosecutors were allowed to call witnesses, no cross-examination of witnesses, and then the prosecutors were also allowed to pick and choose after testimony what the jury would get to hear because the jury would be sequestered during all testimony. In this case, the jury is the American people. It's public perception. But they're trying to launder the information that they are getting about this Ukraine gate allegation, which I, I don't look, a lot of Republicans have gotten weak in the knees recently. A lot of them have started to say, oh, I don't know if I can support Trump on this one. I like this and I say, what exactly is the allegation here? What, what, what exactly is the allegation again? That the president of the United States asked a foreign counterpart to look into corruption in his country that would negatively affect Joe Biden. You can say, and I would agree that that's bare knuckle politics. That's yeah, sure. But I'm old enough to remember Carter Page and George Papadopoulos and General Flynn and, and the Mueller probe and Comey and two years of nothing but scorched earth politics from the left. And now I'm supposed to be so outraged when the president decides that he's going to play rough too? Did he break a law? No? Well, if he didn't break a law, what are we talking about? Oh, that's right. Initially, they tried to say, and you'll remember, this all, this all fell by the wayside. Initially, the accusation was that the president had violated campaign finance law. You remember that that was right when the Ukraine gate happened. Oh, that was the the pretextual. There's a crime here. There's a crime. We need to report on this because there must have been. And to set in motion a narrative that this wasn't just about a difference of policy or this wasn't just about a political maneuver that was 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 rough for sure. Was, was not playing nice. But to make it seem as though there's a justification to believe that this would have been in any way criminal. That's simply ridiculous. It is. It's just simply absurd. And I have to say, uh, the media has beclowned itself once again with all of this, but I, I suppose they have no integrity left to protect. They decided that they would say that there was a campaign finance violation and then they w walked away from it because nobody would really believe that. Because as I said to you, Anything the president does with a foreign counterpart that benefits him politically could be considered a thing of value that he's getting from a foreign government. I mean, the government would cease to. You couldn't have a president anymore, at least not one that does anything in foreign policy. Utterly absurd. But what is this really about? The impeachment process is crisis theater. That's what the Democrats are trying to do here to create the perception of yet another crisis, yet another moment when if you don't go along with what they say, if you don't see this as something that needs urgent action, action that they, of course, are allowed to dictate, then you are allowing the president to trample on our most sacred institutions. All these phrases that are repeated all the time that have just no connection whatsoever to what's really going on in America and your life. We even heard their uh, Steny Hoyer, Representative Hoyer, saying that he was so offended by Trump's actions, as though Trump shouldn't be offended by the things that are done to him all the time. These people, Nancy Pelosi and these Democrats, they'd be happy if they could 
put Trump in prison. They would find that justified. And if they could throw his family members in prison, too, they would do that. Do any of you doubt that for one second? It's not just they disagree with this president. They want to see him ruined, destroyed, and humiliated. So he's supposed to sit there and play nice? This is what the Mitt Romneys of the world never understand. Mitt Romney doesn't really fully grasp the nature of the opposition, what they're willing to do, and the lengths that they will go to in order to get their way. He just doesn't get it. Um crisis theater from the Democrats is exhausting. They are banking on all of you, the banking on the American people, deciding that they just will go along because Trump must have done something bad. If the, if the libs are this freaked out about it, he had to do something bad in Ukraine. Fine. I guess I'll either stay home or I'll vote for somebody else. Don't somebody else. Don't fall for it, please. This is uh, all an absurdity. It really is. The Democrats should be ashamed. Of course, they're incapable of shame. And so here we are. This is going to be a gigantic undertaking, impeaching the president who deserves to be impeached because he's indicted himself. And this is a difficult thing for a nation to go through. This is not, you know, we talk about it like, well, let's impeach. Let's have all these impeachment parties. The fact of the matter is, it is a, I've been through two of them, two presidents being impeached. And it's deadly, deadly earnest. I mean, they're really going to do the sanctimonious, we, we, we need to, this is really serious, guys. This impeachment's really serious. I mean, it is serious, but they're the ones who are making a mockery of the whole thing. He's indicted himself. Notice the usage of the word indictment as though it's a criminal matter. Uh, how exactly? Well, what do they think that they're going to find out in addition? And I would just note that these are the same people, back to our constant series of crises that we're told we must freak out about. These are the same people and Democrats who, after the Mueller probe, were claiming, well, you know, we, we, we could totally we should impeach him based on this. So is it the Mueller probe and the 10 acts of obstruction that couldn't say if they were really criminal or not? Maybe I'm just going to hand it off. The whole thing, folks, it's all a scam. And don't you get, get tired of it? I get tired of it. And I have to do this for work every day. It's all a scam. There's no honesty in any of this. There's no integrity. No one's, no one's respecting the process. No one's concerned about the, the sanctity of our democracy and all that stuff. All these phrases you hear from these Democrats, it's just, they, they, they hate this president. They hate the political movement that was a rebuke of the establishment and the political elites who are, are terrified, not just that they would have to deal with four more years of Trump, but also what would it mean for who they think they are if they're not needed the way that they've always been led to believe or that they have led others to believe. If you don't have to be somebody who served in the Senate for 40 years in order to understand some of the, the most important parts of leading a country like this one, they just can't stomach it. They, they cannot accept the possibility that this president is a success, that this president will continue on for four more years, and that a lot of us are willing to deal with some of his rough edges, which there are certainly some, uh, deal with his rough edges, but do so knowing that it's because we need a brawler to fight against the thugs of the left. We need somebody who's willing to say, not going to play by your rules, not going to do things the way that you tell me we have to do. Uh, the Democrats look at Trump right now and they see somebody who 
is an existential threat to what many of them have been working for for decades, for their whole lives, which is a set, which is effectively an hour switching gears a little bit, effectively a, a transfer of America into a, a full-on democratic socialist state where the government has even, the government's too big right now, spends too much right now, has more authority than it should in your day-to-day life. Uh, th- they want to just max that out. They want to take that up to the absolute top of the scale. Trump is a threat to that. He's not cutting government spending the way that he should, but he is still a threat to the left's plan of a benevolent authoritarianism along the lines of what they have in China. I think that's really the dream of many leftists in this country. I think we have some more evidence to add into my theory that the climate change activists, uh, not just in this country, but around the world, are, in fact, uh, part of a religious cult, which is why they believe in elevating the scientific wisdom of children to a global platform, why they want people who don't speak the way they want them to speak about the issue to be shunned and to be punished, why they'll abandon otherwise widely held uh, principles like freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, in order to uh, make sure that the preferred, the preferred version of, well, their religious belief, climate change, is, is what is shared. Uh, the Guardian... This is amazing. The Guardian is one of the largest papers in the UK, might, might be the largest paper in, in Great Britain, has published its uh, in its style guide section for reporting on climate. And I know pe- people overuse the term Orwellian, but this is Orwellian. I mean, you go back to some of Orwell's most famous essays. He speaks at some length, or writes at some length, I should say, about the way that political language is abused for purposes that are meant to mislead, to brainwash, to downplay certain things and to elevate others, and that politi- there's a tremendous amount of dishonesty in political language. I mean, I talk to you about this sometimes in particularly the context of immigration. Undocumented. What is that? Where did that come from? Well, it used to just be illegal immigrant because I wanted them to sound like immigrants, but even the illegal part of it, they didn't like. So then it moved from illegal alien, the proper legal federal code term to illegal immigrant to undocumented immigrant to now just undocumented. Hmm. All I got to do is give them some documents and the problem goes away. Isn't that amazing? So the, uh, the guardian has published its, its guidance for climate change. I thought this was great. They now, I mean, it's just so, so, uh, so well illustrates exactly what I'm, what I'm talking to you about and what my contention is with all this. Climate change is to be replaced now, according to The Guardian. That no more climate change. Remember, it was global warming, wasn't it? Remember that? I grew up with global warming. And then it turned into climate change. Well, that's not scary enough. So now the official guideline of The Guardian, newspaper in the UK, says that it has to now be climate emergency or climate crisis. Ah, okay. Isn't that interesting? Climate emergency or climate crisis? Because it needs to be scarier sounding. And there's an enormous judgment that is baked into that, right? If you say that something is a crisis or an emergency, it requires immediate action. They are telling. This is a very large and very storied newspaper that is trying to tell not just its own readership in the UK, but people read The Guardian all over the world. 
that there is a a crisis of the possibility of one degree or so warming Celsius over the next 50 to 100 years based on changes in the CO2 composition of the atmosphere, which is less than 1% or so of the atmosphere. Yeah. That's what they're... It's a crisis! It's a catastrophe! Climate emergency or climate crisis. That's how they will officially report on this now. It's no longer called climate change. It's climate crisis. It's a cri- they're just saying it's a crisis. You know, imagine if they said they couldn't report on health care anymore. It had to be health care crisis. That's the only phrase that's allowed. There's a tremendous value judgment baked into that. And also, as I've been saying, liberals, the leftists, they, in, an, in a world with the internet and with the much greater f- uh, free sharing of information there's ever been in the past, they've overused the, the, the going to the crisis well. Too many times. They've gone after, oh, this is a crisis. You have to do something. You must do what we say because it's a crisis. People say, okay, well, I guess everything is a crisis now. Anything that they want to happen must be considered uh, a crisis. Oh, and then the other part of this for the climate change loons is that climate science denier or climate denier is going to be used instead of climate skeptic denier or essentially climate denier or climate science denier now and denier specifically because they want to associate this with people that deny the holocaust because that's you know holocaust denial is illegal in some parts of europe and they want that association yeah you're denying something that's they believe the possible extinction of the human race and you're preventing the world from tackling that problem I don't know how much crazier the libs really plan to get with all of this, but it, I think it, it is most certainly going, most certainly going to get worse. Um, and then we also have, let's see, whoops. There's some. I'm trying to find what the other items are in here, in this Guardian thing. Greenhouse gas emissions is preferred to carbon emissions or carbon dioxide emissions. I mean, why? Well, I guess that's just because it's wider. Um, And then fish populations instead of fish stocks. All right. Well, that's pretty minor. But the other ones are pretty important uh, and meaningful. And it also comes at a time when there is a video now, and this is up on foxnews.com, of climate change activists who think that they have... The moral high ground, so so firmly under their feet that they would stop people from being able to get on commuter trains to go to work in the morning in London. So these protesters are hopping on top of the trains with their signs, business as usual equals death. One of the protesters, I mean, I don't know if it's possible for people to be dumber than these individuals. Business as usual equals death. The only people who could really believe this, there's a lot of cynical belief in climate change from people who either make a lot of money off of it, from people who use it as a tool for political dominance. There's mo- it's mostly cynics. See, I have too much faith in the brain power of, of the climate change believers to think that most of them are just complete morons. But if you really think that business as usual equals death for us, you're an idiot. I don't know what else to say. 
The world's not going to end. I, I just wish that there was a way that I could place a bet on this. You know, there was the equivalent of a of a stock exchange for crazy climate predictions. I would put and, and it would be in 12 years is the world past the point of no return. Can you prove evidence that this is the case? And because remember, if in 12 years we haven't done what they say we need to do, then it's too late. And so if it's too late in 12 years, that would mean that we should just stop caring about the climate change, CO2 stuff altogether because it's too late. I wish there was a way that I could just put the largest sum of money I could on that not. I would let it sit for 12 years on that not being true. And they would because in 12 years, you know, what will happen. They'll say, oh, well. It turns out our prediction was a little bit, a little bit off, but now it's in the next, it's in the next 10 years. We're we're sure this time, the next 10 years, if we don't deal with this, then the whole world, then the whole world's going to end. You know, there's this uh, group in the show, Parks and Recreation, the Parks and Rec's a great show. Some people actually say that I look like one of the guys from the show. And right now we've got producer Brandon nodding at me. I mean... He's a, he's a handsome enough fellow. I'll, I'll I'll take it. I mean, I could definitely beat him in a you know steel cage match. But he's he's a nice he's a nice enough fellow, I suppose. Uh, but in that show, there's a group that holds a, and I do recommend go to season two, skip season one, and then watch the rest of it from season two on. It's on Netflix. Great show. But there's a group called the Reasonableists, and every year they have a an end of the world party because they're the world. Now you might say, why would they call themselves the Reasonableists? Well, because how could you disagree with them? They're so reasonable. That's right. It's a, it's a marketing ploy. It's kind of a funny one. But every year, and it becomes a joke on the show, they have their The World is Ending Party. It's the last night of the world. And then sure enough, the world doesn't end. And lo and behold, when the sun comes up the next day and everything is the same, they go, oh, well, we've looked again at our magic tablets and it turns out that next year is the year that the world's going to end and they get ready and they throw their big end of the world party again. That is the that, that is of the same intellectual depth and seriousness as the people who think that climate change is going to end the world in 12 years. They're absurd. They're absurd. Or that we will be past the point of no return and therefore en route to human extinction. But how do they know that we won't develop some technology that will suck all the CO2 we want out of the air? They don't know that. And that's just one that's just one idea that you can come up with. Eh, they don't know anything, folks. It's all absurd. And yet they're so spoon-fed this crap by the media. And the media is all so busy with the virtue signaling of, oh, we're gonna save the planet and coming after Buck. Buck is bashing children again. I didn't bash any children, it's not true. I just said that it's pathetic and disgusting that adults use children to make very complicated political arguments that the adults are too cowardly or dumb to make themselves. Oh, it turns out, uh, um, who was it that got the, I actually, I actually wanted to find this real quick. Somebody got the Nobel, I believe it was the prime minister of, was it Ethiopia? I think it was. Uh, let me see if I can find that for you real quick. Um, it was not young, yeah, Abi Ahmed. Uh, I'm sorry, was it, uh, yes, Nobel Peace Prize 2019. So he he got it for his work to actually do peace and uh, save a lot of people. His decisive initiative to resolve the border conflict with neighboring Eritrea. Okay, so there you go. A guy got the Nobel Peace Prize for actually doing something involving peace. 
that's that's a step in the right direction. I I have to tell you, I think that is the uh, the right thing. At least that it's something to do with with something. Um, people are calling it the uh, Ethiopian Spring here in the New York Times because Ethiopia is trying to mend fences with Eritrea. Anyway, I didn't go to Greta Thunberg, and people were saying that she was robbed. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, the climate change activists are a very scary bunch in some ways because you cannot reason with them. You cannot have a, a rational discussion. And if you try, uh, they then just fall back on you must want the world and you must not care about the human race. And that's why you had these protesters in the UK this morning who were standing on trains preventing people from getting to work in the morning. And there's some video of people who are angry pulling them off the trains physically and maybe getting a little rough with them. I got to tell you, I, I do not. If somebody, let's say, was barring me from getting here to the Freedom Hut in the morning because they and they had some sign on their chest about how climate change means climate crisis is here or whatever it is. Would it be tempting up to and including the point where I think I would do it, where I just grab them and physically throw them out of the way of the train door so that I could get on? Yes. I do not blame these people at all. People have jobs. They have livelihoods. They have responsibilities. These little climate change brats think they have a right based on this absurd idea. And it's absurd. I'll never forget the few times I went on CNN and climate change came up. And I looked at the people on and I said, I mean, you guys really believe this crap? Are you are you serious? You, you really think that this is going to happen? That we're, we're all going to die? The people that say we're not all going to die like me, we're the crazy ones? No, no, no. I think the other side are the reasonableists here. But I was uh, hoping at least that protesters will watch what happened in these uh, in this train station of people that are stopping folks from getting to work in the morning in the UK and realize that you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to shut it down. You're not allowed to occupy. You're not allowed to take these illegal measures that really affect people. I mean, I get furious when people lie down on highways and do these things where they block people from being able to... Could you imagine? Um one, one just little note on this, and I was one pointing this out at the time, and I don't think nearly enough people paid attention to this. There were MSNBC hosts during the Bridgegate Chris, Kist, uh, Chris Christie phenomenon, where Chris Christie was not found of guilty of any wrongdoing there. There were some of his subordinate people who were stupid and decided to create a traffic jam. But there were people going on MSNBC saying that there might be uh, manslaughter charges necessary because if the Bridgegate traffic resulted in someone getting to the hospital later this is back when chris christie this is probably i don't know five six years ago now um that would be equivalent to an involuntary manslaughter situation because you you cause it and i think i thought it was so interesting because that just was allowed to be put out there without anyone else coming out to say what about all these it's always leftists it's always left-wing lib protesters that think they can shut down a highway that'll block people from getting to work no one ever makes that argument. Now, I think that that argument's a, a tough one to make stick, but the point is there's no principle involved here. It's just leftists, whether MSNBC or anywhere else, whether it's reporting on climate change, trying to advance an agenda. That's what is going on. And uh, I think a lot of people are sick of it. I know that I am. Climate change catastrophe, climate change crisis. No, no, that's, that's not, not, not going to cut it, folks.
Truly sad about it is I, I pray for the president all the time, and I tell him that I pray for his safety and that of his family. I think now we have to pray for his health because this was a very serious meltdown on the part of the president. Uh, I was expressed my appreciation for what our troops have done in Syria, and by all accounts, from the generals, they have just really done the job very well. That he's now pulling out. Uh, the uh, explanation for that is what we asked for all members of the House to hear, and that was supposed to be tomorrow, but now he, they then they somehow postponed it today. My concern that I expressed to the president is that Russia has for a long time always wanted to have a foothold in the Middle East, and now he has enabled that to happen. Two quick points here. I just want to play that. For one, Nancy Pelosi, such such uh, smug, backhanded nonsense. Oh, she prays for the president because he's crazy is what she's saying. She can't even say she prays for him without taking a, a hit at him, you know? She's she's a disgrace, folks, and she really is. Also, just the stupidity of what she said there. Russia wants a foothold in the Middle East. Russia has had a naval base in Syria for decades, Nancy, and Russia's foothold in Syria got a whole lot bigger under, wait for it, the Obama administration kept Assad in power. The Russians were able to keep Assad in power. And Obama didn't do a thing about it. But Russia wants a foothold in the Middle East. Yeah, Russia has a close relationship with Syria and a close relationship with Iran. And guess what? That's not going to change. But Nancy Pelosi, I swear, the, the, the media, they just they let her get away with anything. Pray for the president because I think, I think the president might be crazy. I don't think it's a president that's crazy, Nancy. Team, I often tell you that the left pretends that they care about the uh, sacred democracy that we have, that the institutions are under assault from Donald Trump and all the rest. Uh, But the left says that, and yet they're the ones that often are undermining the very institutions they pretend to care so much about. Well, there's a fantastic book that delves into that, as well as a whole lot of other subject matter. Uh, Resistance at All Costs. How Trump Haters Are Breaking America is the book. The author is our friend Kimberly Strassel from the Wall Street Journal editorial board. She's a fantastic writer, fantastic lady. Kim, great to have you back. Hi, Buck. It's so great to be back. So, all right. Resistance at all costs. What are the costs and how are they resisting? Tell me about this. Okay, so the idea of this is, as you said constantly hearing for three years that Donald Trump is destroying democracy, undermining our institutions. And by the way, let me say, I do think Donald Trump is norm-breaking in some ways. Uh, He certainly, in terms of his rhetoric, in terms of his tweets, he's a disruptor. But a lot of people actually, in fact, voted for him for that reason. But if you step back and you look objectively at institutions and at standards and at really important principles in the country, it's the other side that is doing the damage. So whether that be the loss of faith in the FBI and the Department of Justice because of their investigation into the Trump campaign, whether it is the wreckage that is now our Senate confirmation process after Brett Kavanaugh, uh, whether it's the new use of impeachment as a partisan tool. All right. So, I mean, Kim, how how unusual is this whole process, really? I mean, have you seen anything like this before in any president that you've ever covered in terms of the way that both the Democratic Party and the media seem willing to abandon core principles? I mean, journalists now pretty openly in some cases will say that it's no longer about calling balls and strikes. We got to just call strikes against Trump because he's a danger. 
Right, exactly. And you just put your finger on the biggest reason that this is happening. Okay, I think the impulse to break rules has been present forever, right? It's just that's part of humanity. But we have long relied on these neutral institutions, or at least semi-neutral institutions like the press, to act as arbiters and to say, no, this is not good. This is bad. You don't get to you don't get to have double standards, etc. The press has abandoned that role. Um, and so they have indulged Democrats in all of their behavior. There used to be a day when you know, let's say during the Senate confirmation hearings, that if you came out against a uh, Brett Kavanaugh with an uncorroborated accusation, the press would say, whoa, whoa, uh, this is not really cricket. Instead, they all ran the uncorroborated accusations in the press and fanned the flames. And so I think that this is simply we've got a problem where the media is no longer acting as referee. What is the single institution that you think has done the most damage either to itself or that Democrats have weaponized and therefore damaged the most in the process against Trump? Well, I actually think the most serious one is, in fact, impeachment right now. Um, You know, and look, it's true, by the way, I've read the Constitution, you have too. It does not define how they have to run impeachment hearings. Um, But there's a reason why in the past two times we've done them in modern history that we had a process, we had a vote uh, for accountability on the floor of the House, and then we had a set of rules, and we gave uh, the accused the opportunity to present their own evidence, to cross-examine witnesses. Uh, instead, as we know, this is being held in secret behind closed doors with secret witnesses and leaked partial bits of transcripts. Um, and it's why they haven't convinced Americans uh, or, you know, a majority of Americans that this is the right thing to do. But the reason I find this most dangerous is because, as you know, once you set a new precedent in Washington, a bad precedent, it only goes down from there. And I keep telling my liberal friends, do you really want to go here? Because let's just imagine Joe Biden wins the election next year. But let's also imagine Republicans take back the House. Are we going to instantly and immediately file articles of impeachment against Joe Biden over his supposed Ukrainian corruption? I mean, is this the new standard? So it's a, I think that's a scary thing. Yeah, and I also would say President Trump doesn't get a lot of credit, despite all the chants about lock her up. He didn't have the DOJ, at least as far as we know, go back and look at Hillary Clinton's, from, from what we know, pretty flagrant violations of law during the campaign with email servers and the destruction of evidence. So I, I think that there has been some good faith shown to the process and the peaceful transition of power from Trump that has certainly not been mirrored on the other side. And I mean, that's that's one of the concerns that I have. And I wonder if you tackle just the this part of it in, in the book. And by the way, we're speaking to Kim Strassel. The book is Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. I mean, I see a pattern here, Kim. The 2000 election, stolen. Uh, the Electoral College, uh, completely unnecessary. Popular vote, Democrats win it. They pretend like that means they really won the election. 2016 election, stolen because of Russia-Trump collusion that didn't actually happen. I, they, I well, think that this is pretty clear undermining of the election itself. Of course it is. And, you know, what you're also expressing there is a party that has given up on trying to do what parties are supposed to do, which is to convince Americans of their governing philosophy and then win by the rules that we have set out. They can't win by those rules, so they are deciding now that they're just going to 
change the rules or break the rules. Um, and, you know, and that's just some of, I mean, you know, they're going to stack the Supreme Court, according to them. They're going to get rid of the filibuster. You know, why don't you try going out there and actually convincing more Americans that the agenda you're proposing will be good for the country? Um, but, you know, just one more thing on that point you mentioned about uh, Donald Trump not locking Hillary Clinton up. One of my favorite chapters is a book is pointing out that, that Trump's kind of uh, more disruptive speech and tweets aside. If you look out, step back and look out at his agencies and his departments, this has been one of the more rule-bound administrations we've seen in quite a long time, and especially by comparison to the one that came before it, which ruled by executive fiat and went around Congress and weaponized his Department of Justice. Oh, and the IRS, yes. Yeah, and the IRS. (laughs) Yeah. That little thing, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, people love to say, like, Trump the dictator. I'm sorry, folks, but dictators don't reduce the size of federal regulations by one third or or spend all their political capital putting judges on the courts that are dedicated to the Constitution. And they also tend not to just accept wildly overbroad universal injunctions from any federal judge who is an Obama or Clinton appointee of the last 20 years, uh, deciding that the executive branch doesn't really get to be the executive branch, which, you know, I mean, I, I think the universal injunction problem where, where one federal judge can just say, nope, sorry, the president, the executive branch can't do that is a big problem. But even beyond that, Trump respects it every, I mean, they've respected it and they keep just saying, okay, we'll see what appeals or okay, we'll see what the Supreme Court and they keep winning. Yeah, I've got a whole chapter in the book on the judicial resistance, and it gets into that problem you just mentioned about national injunctions. But there are all kinds of other ones, too, if you're a a legal geek. You know, all of these judges that are also instantly crying constitutional foul. The Supreme Court, you know, gives out instructions that says, don't do that. Try to rule on statutes because it's just too lazy and too easy. But you have all of these resistance judges that are themselves breaking long-standing judicial traditions just in order to send a message to Trump. Um, This is happening all over the place, and it's doing damage to the country. What do you think happens if Trump wins, by the way, if he wins again? (laughs) Well, you know, I would love to think that that would be a rebuke to these tactics and that the left would finally step back and say, okay, maybe we need to try to be civil and try another approach. But you know what? I'm not quite sure I am that optimistic. All right. Kim Strassel, everybody. Resistance at all costs. How Trump haters are breaking America. Kim, great to have you as always. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bob. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very exciting announcement for you from the uh, Justin Trudeau headquarters uh, here in New York City. The uh, one and only Barack Obama has uh, endorsed Monsieur Trudeau for the Prime Minister of Canada. That's right, folks. Justin Trudeau got a uh, a bit of a an unexpected uh, helping hand for his reelection from President Barack Obama. And President Obama tweeted out the following. I was proud to work with Justin Trudeau as president. He's a hardworking, effective leader who takes on big issues like climate change. The world needs his progressive leadership now, and I hope our neighbors to the north support him for another term. Oh my, there is so much going on here. Like, for example, the, um, the most beloved Democrat in America has come out for Monsieur Trudeau in Canada. And 
Yeah, I know. He, I know he doesn't sound like that, but we're just going to pretend that he sounds like that because it's more fun than just doing. Yes, I'm Justin Trudeau. I'm Canadian. I'm very polite, and I kind of sound like this. I sound like I could be doing an NPR podcast on the best on on the best ways to make apple strudel. Oh gosh, it's delicious, eh? Uh, I know that's kind of more what Trudeau really sounds like, but he's a beloved figure on the left because Trudeau. Well, both Obama and Trudeau are beloved and left, but Trudeau in particular uh, exemplifies some of the more left-wing cultural attributes that uh, makes him a, a progressive hero of sorts. Even though, as we know, Justin Trudeau, it is not, it is not fair to say that Justin Trudeau uh, wore blackface. It is, it is more fair or more accurate to say that he had a wearing blackface problem that was consistent over a number of, of years, it seems. So this this was a recurrent thing that he did. Huh. And yet the the first black president in America's history has out of out of nowhere, really. I mean, you don't Barack Obama is not someone that you're hearing from all that often on, on these issues decides that he will endorse Trudeau as president. Now, I got a few things here. First of all. I mean, not that I want to be the one that's always complaining about this. Isn't this foreign interference in the election? Wouldn't that be in the Canadian election? Right. Is, how would how would Libs feel if Vladimir Putin? I mean, let's just get to it. If Vladimir Putin came out and said, unless you're a very stupid, uh, wimpy man, you will vote for uh, President Trump. They would lose their minds, even if Trump had nothing to do with it. They'd say, oh, it's more collusion. Is it really? You know, I, I look. I I know that I know that Barack Obama is no longer the president of the United States. I get it. So he's a private citizen and he's sharing his opinion on a on a foreign election. But you just would think that may, maybe there'd be a, a little bit more sensitivity right now about that issue than there than there might have been at other times, given how much liberals complain about this. But also notice how uh, it it is just understood. On the left, and the American left and the Canadian left are, are essentially the same. I mean, the same ideology. Canadian left is just a little more polite and can handle the cold a little bit better. But more or less, we're talking about the same same belief system. That Trudeau was not going to be finished by those photos. That he was not going to be... Uh, remember, it's not just that he is not stepping down. It's that he could win re-election when those come out. Hmm. And some of you are probably saying, Buck, what about Ralph Northam in Virginia? What about some of the other Democrats in this country who have gotten away with this? And to this, I say, yeah, of course, the hypocrisy is the hypocrisy is mind blowing. But we all knew we all knew that despite Trudeau having these photos come out and then the, the almost and really jaw dropping, hard to believe moment where he's like, yes, I, I do not even remember how many instances of this there were. And it's like, uh, you don't even remember how many times you did this? It was hard to believe that he said that at a press conference, but he did. Okay. And now he's running for president. Looks like he might. I'm sorry, prime minister. Prime minister, not the president. Uh, he's running for prime minister. And Barack Obama very clearly and strongly endorses him. See, if you're on the left, you get taken care of, folks. If you are on the left, it is understood. It is to be expected that you will be held to a standard that 
is different from what you'd be if you were a conservative, if you were on the right. Uh, and that means a degree of, if not invulnerability, cert, uh, certainly uh, second chances that somebody else who is of, of a different political persuasion would never, ever get. Oh, and then there's one other thing here that I was leaving for last because I want to save the best for last. See, that is like a, a little bit. I haven't sung today on the show. And producer Mark looked like he was getting a little sad. And I don't want him to have a sad day. So I was like, you could save the best for last. You know? That's you can sing all you want tomorrow. Oh, thank you. He's very being very kind. He's actually being a little smug because producer Brandon's going to be in for him tomorrow. So I know what's going on here. I know how that goes. But yeah, no, that was meta, meant as a, a diss, as you like to call it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a diss. We're gonna, Brandon, we want to bring that back, by the way. Right? It's a great word. Dissed. Oh, you got dissed. Now people say you got burned. No, no. Sorry. That's a sick burn. No, no, no. Diss. That really, it's fun to say, and it definitely is clear what we're talking about. All right, but speaking of disses, you guys see that? You see what I did there? You know who hasn't gotten an endorsement from President Obama like what he did for Justin Trudeau here on Twitter? Joe Biden. You got to be thinking, hold on a second. You are, you're the guy who's running for president. You're, you're leading in the polls, all the polls still. You were vice president to Barack Obama for eight years. And you don't get any, you don't get any love from Obama the way that Trudeau just did? I mean, there's really only a couple of ways you could explain this. And I, I'm, I'm not sure which one it is. I know what the options are. I'm not sure which one it really is. Um, but I would say this. Y- y- it could be that um, Barack Obama really is just first and foremost concerned with his own brand and his own legacy. And the associate, you know, he, he, he wants to support Trudeau because Trudeau is still a revered figure on the left and people think that he's should be the next prime minister. I mean, look, everyone thinks that what he did, I mean, everybody agrees is bad. It was, you know, no, no one's letting, but they're going to give him another chance and, and they think that he's too important. And so Barack Obama's brand is still supportive of Trudeau because Trudeau is a man of the left. And then the other possibility, and maybe this is it. So essentially it's all about Obama. Just he supports who he wants to support, doesn't care about anything else. But then there's another one, one that I think is also worthy of our consideration right now. What if Barack Obama, who I've always is is a smart guy and was a savvy politician, you know, I, I did not like his policies. I, I there was a lot of stuff about Obama I didn't like, but I, you know, the guy, the guy won two two terms, eight years, ran through domestic uh, progressive agenda items that people have been dreaming about on the left for for decades. I mean, you know, the guy was a formidable adversary. Let's let's give credit where a formidable political adversary. Um, maybe he just realizes that Biden can't get it done. Maybe that that's really what maybe that's why he's being quiet. He's like, Joe Biden's not going to win. And he cares enough about his own legacy, the policies that he put in place. And maybe he even thinks just the country to know that if it's Biden, it's actually going to be Trump. But I got to tell you, if I'm Joe Biden, and I saw that tweet. I would be, I'd be steamed, my friends, steamed indeed. But uh, good for a good day for Trudeau, I suppose. How 
Do you plan to get assault weapons away from people who don't want to give them up? It's pretty simple. Um, as with any law in this country, we would expect our fellow Americans to follow the law. It's one of those things that distinguishes us from so much of the rest of the world. We're a nation of laws and no person is above the law, no matter how much they may disagree with a given law. We also have the precedent of Australia, which took the bold step of having a mandatory buyback of these AR-15s and AK-47s. As you know, weapons yeah. that were designed for war, to kill people on a battlefield that have no use for hunting or self-defense in your home, but can kill people at a terrifying rate and terrifying numbers yeah. if left in the hands of civilians. And we've seen that in El Paso, in Dayton, in Odessa. Throughout this country. But so I mean, so I this is the right thing to do. And, and I fully expect my fellow Americans to follow the law. You expect mass shooters to follow the law? Our fellow Americans will follow the law. Yes. Congressman, um, and mass shooters don't follow. By definition, the mass shooters in Parkland, in El Paso, I could go on for 10 minutes. They don't follow the law by definition. Th there are so many instances where the proposals that we've made, whether it is a universal background check or a red flag law or ending the sale of weapons of war or buying those that are out there back would have stopped many of the shootings that we see in a country that loses 40,000 people a year to gun violence. Would it stop every single shooting? No. Beto is an idiot. Even CNN knows it. Allison Cabarrato is like, but wait a second. I think that a person who is a heinous criminal and mass murderer might not hand in their assault rifle. What what are you going to do about that? And Beto's like, but like they're Americans, so like they'll totally they'll totally obey. Cause it would be it would harsh my mellow if they didn't. And I would be like such so bummed. So here we are. And she's like, but Beto! I, you're running as a Democrat and you're a moron. Why can't you understand how stupid your proposal is? He's like, but but I don't I just like I just want to I want to bring together the country and bring our hearts together, and and he doesn't. By the way, he's numbered forty. It's not even forty thousand. It's not even right. There's less than fifteen thousand uh, gun crimes or uh, gun murders in the country a, a year. He's including suicides in that, which is uh, which is preposterous. No one's using also no one's using an assault rifle to commit suicide. Anyway, it's just B Beto's an idiot. Even CNN's like a little a little bit. Uh, they've lost patience with him. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. Uh, that one always gets me fired up. That's the fun, that's the fun Roll Call. There's a lot of good Roll Calls. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send me thoughts for the show. Or our very official, official email, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. That is where you can send that. And with that, my friends, let's get to it. We have Mark in Louisiana. Buck, I have figured out what is wrong with Joe Biden. As you know, El Rushbo calls him plugs due to his hair implants. When the plugs were implanted, I think more than a few punctured uh, his meningococcal layer, that would explain a lot. Now, oh, okay. All right. Thanks, man. I don't even know what that, what's the meningococcal layer? Is that a, that's 
Meningococcus is a disease. It actually gives you meningitis. Buck knows all the facts. But uh, I don't know what the meningococcal layer is. I think I think he's just being funny or trying to be funny or something. Uh, I didn't know that Biden actually wears hair plugs, though. But dude, whatever. You know, I don't I, look. I don't like to. I, I, I do not. I do not do the uh, I try to never do the make fun of 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 anyone and, you know, make fun of their appearance thing. I just that's not my it's not my way. Uh, none of us, none of us are above or beyond that, uh, or I should say none of us are beyond that. And so we should all be above it. Um, let's see. Brad writes, your Warren voice is very good. No doubt. Just know it's also a pretty decent ledger Joker voice. I can't unhear it. Wow. Hi. My daddy was a, daddy was a mailman in Oklahoma. And now here I am. I just want to take on Wall Street. Producer Brandon's a little impressed. I can tell. He's, that, uh, he's... That it does sound like the Joker from yeah. Heath Ledger's Joker. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's right. I just want to just rein in Wall Street and its excesses. Oh. Yeah. It's disturbing, though, because I like the Joker. Yes. Yeah, well, mm. I actually, I think I'm going to go see the Joker movie on Friday. I have to go it. see it. Yeah, my my go, fiance seen, is you've scared. You've seen it, right? You haven't seen it yet? I, mm. I've heard people say that it's really good. Which you have to think that that's probably high praise because it's going to be automatically judged against Heath Ledger's version of the Joker from Batman. Uh, the the second, Dark Knight Rises. The Dark Knight Rises, right? So if even in that context it's good, it must be a pretty good movie. Yeah, I wanted to see it. I had tickets. My fiance got scared and decided she didn't want to see it. So now I still haven't seen it. It's upsetting. You know, I had someone tell me recently that uh, that, she, that she had seen like... Like this, like the ten scariest movies ever made, and and I was like, I got I got to get this list of the ten scariest movies so that producer Brandon can tell me if in fact they are the ten scariest movies. What was the what was the Korean what was the scariest Korean movie? The thing that you told me about that one time, you said it was a Korean movie. It's the scariest thing you've ever seen. I'm trying to think of uh, Train to Busan. Yes, that's a. A great zombie movie. Great one, zombie movie. Okay, one of the best in, in in decades. Really, it's just just original, beautiful shot, beautifully shot. Okay, so that's actually like a good. It's actually like a good movie for what it is, but it's scary. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Check it out. Oh, is it really? Unless I'm, they've I'm, taken it off. I'm too much of a wimp, dude. <laughs> I, I I can't even. You know, I watch the lights on. I I watch the strain sometimes on Hulu, and I have to go like, oh gosh, I can't handle it. I I wimp out on that stuff. All right. Yeah, I know. But maybe yeah. I'll watch Tra- Train to Busan. That's what I was trying to think of. Train to Busan. You said that was yeah, a good, it's a great movie. Good zombie flick. All right, back to our roll call here. Um, I still thought, by the way, The Witch was was really scary. And uh, I don't know if any of you saw that, but that that one gave me nightmares. Um, Jason, just kidding, did give me nightmares. That sounded too wimpy. I shouldn't make fun of myself that much. Jason, I can't read your note. So, oh, that's because it's a form, a form email. That that doesn't. That's not. He's not. That's not the real Jason. Uh, let's see. Your impersonation of Warren reminds me of. This is from Christopher, of Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> I don't think that's. Wow, I like to eat chocolate. Oh gosh, oh, I have Wall Street stealing all the chocolate. Not leaving any for the children. Yeah, sort of. Little Nicky. I don't even. What's that? Adam Sandler movie. Um, I'm somebody who never understood the Adam Sandler appeal. I don't know. I'm one of the. I'm an Adam Sandler skeptic. Uh, I I just got groans. I'm an Adam Sandler denier. 
I, I, I do not. I do not. Get what is it. wrong with you? Yeah. I mean, lately he has stunk, but the '90s stuff is fantastic. The price is wrong. Um, all right, let's see. We have next here, Linda. Right, Buck OSS here. In addition to your always insightful commentary, I'm particularly amused by your Elizabeth Warren impersonation. Yes, it is official now. Wow, the people really like it. Makes me laugh every time. Your take on waiting for her to tell some probably false stories belongs on a (laughs) T-shirt. My daddy always told me growing up, if you've got two roosters in the barn and you take one rooster, you know, you got an apple pie. Not Elizabeth Warren's daddy. Uh, congratulations on the first. Thank you for all you do. And keep singing no matter what producer Mark says. Shields high, Linda down in Florida. We got producer Mark and producer Brandon in here today. So it's, it's basically a Freedom Hut party. So, and that's why, that's why we started the, the first. So you guys could be a part of the Freedom Hut party. Uh, cause there ain't no party like it cause they don't stop. Uh, uh, oh, um, let's see. Let's see. We have uh, Anthony writes, Buck, it is not Burisma, which is the issue with Hunter Biden. It is the $1.8 billion U.S. tax dollars that disappeared from the bank owned by the oligarch that owns Burisma. Want to bet Hunter was hired to deflect investigation of that. And then number two, it is Medicaid for all, not Medicare. Medicare is insurance. It has deductibles and copays. It is Medicaid with its lack of choice clinics and waiting lines, which is free government care. Other than that, I love your show. Uh, OSS, Tony. Tony, uh, I, I have to, uh, the, the second thing you're saying, I, I agree with your point. I've said that before, that it's not accurate to call it Medicare because the Medicare has, has co-pays, has cost sharing, doesn't cover everything. There's, you know, there's a prescription drug, additional coverage people need for it with Medicare. And you've been paying into Medicare your entire adult life if you've been paying taxes. So uh, you're correct. It it is actually really more accurately described as Medicaid for all. They would say, but no, it'll be on the same pricing scale as Medicare, which is why it's Medicare is uh, appealing to people because a a good amount. A lot of doctors take Medicare, although not as many as some people would want. Very few. I I can tell you this. I see in a lot of offices that I go to here in New York City, uh, doctors that, that don't take Medicaid. Um, and some of them will also stop taking Medicare patients because they they uh, can't pay their bills if they take too many Medicare patients. So your point on that is well taken. And then I got to look into what you're saying about the one point eight billion tax dollars that disappeared from the bank the oligarch owned. I have to check that out and see if, in fact, uh, what you're saying there makes sense. James in Boston. James is a great name. Technically, my first name, too. So for all the libs who are always like, your name is Buck, you're an idiot. I'm like, you're an idiot. My name's not really technically Buck. How about that? Boom. In their face, producer Brandon. In their face. All up, all up in their faces. Um, James writes, hey, Buck, you're absolutely right about Bill Barr. We need his talents to continue to serve the country. Political correctness and cancer culture are a form of fascism. It is all about control. WXCast Boston will wipe out the last half hour of the show, so I'll miss Roll Call. Shields high. James, no, that's why you must listen on the podcast, my friend. Or watch the Pluto TV stream on channel 248. The first. The first. That should be your first option when you want to watch uh, some conservative commentary every day. 
It's me, it's my main man, Jesse Kelly, and some other fantastic people who will be joining in on this action soon. Uh, let's see. Lowell. Hey, Buck. Great start with the new TV show. Do you think you'll be working with other radio and conservative personalities? I think Raheem Kassam would be a great add to the channel. And they can get more views out there. The better, the, the more, I think, pardon me, I think the more you can get your views out there, that's what he wrote, the better off the conservative party will be in grow. Keep up the great work. I really like the new show. Lol, thank you so much. Raheem is my main man. He's a great guy. And uh, I certainly would be very happy if he could join us here on the first. Jesse Kelly, all nine foot three of him, is a fantastic individual. He's already here. We are hoping to add in some other great people soon. Uh, we, we will be adding in some other great people soon. Um, and the powers that be watch this show. So they've heard your vote of support for Mr. Raheem Kassam. Brad, right? And the subject, this is all going to, by the way, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. These are all emails. We'll do, the, we'll do some Facebook tomorrow. Brad writes, uh, Chinese movie censors, no joke, Remember when the Red Dawn remake came out and they switched the invading force from being Chinese to being North Korean? Not that it would have made the movie any less trash compared to the original, but it was still a stupid, pandering movie. Wolverines! Shields high. I've only seen part of... This is, I shouldn't admit this. I've only seen part of Red Dawn. I couldn't... I, was like, I, I fell asleep during it, but I was very tired. Should I go back, producer producer mark and actually watch this thing i think it's one of these cult classics that if you haven't already seen it maybe would you, would you like me to be honest with you yeah i've never seen it oh well it was before your time quite exactly early, before you were I'm born. Young. yeah what's it what's it like to think that you know miley cyrus is the greatest recording artist of all time you know what are the That's kids disgusting your... <laughs> please do not put that in my mouth <laughs> what's it like to be in that generation uh, i'm a backstreet boys type of there we go who who let the dogs out? Remember that too. That was that was a song that that was a song yeah, that people two thousand. That was a while Something ago. Like that. Yeah, I, I can't I can't sing it on the air because people have told me not to sing. Don writes, "Good evening, Buck. What do you think? I think Bill Barr be an excellent nomination by our president for the next inevitable Supreme Court justice. It actually has a ring to it. Shields high. Supreme Court Justice Barr. I agree. He'd be fantastic. Uh, they'll never. They would." Well, I was going to say they will go all the way to def to defeat any conservative appointee to the Supreme Court for the next for the next slot. Uh, the liberals will completely lose their minds over that. So maybe he wouldn't be any less likely than some of the others in a lot of ways. And so it's not it's not the I'll say this. It's not the craziest thing I've ever heard. Another James. I got a different James. Good first hour, Buck. Hey. You're, you're killing it on Hunter Biden. A rose by any other name would smell. The Kurds first see it wouldn't want to be a, then all, oh, well, then that's their problem. I think Trump using sanctions is the right move. Stay away from taxes and health without me, and you're moving up on the east side. Hmm. James. Okay. I, I didn't really, I didn't really uh, get that one. Kathy. Writes, hey, Buck, I'm wondering if you've read the, the stories from Project Veritas on CNN. Since on your Monday show you stated you know stuff about CNN, maybe it's time to share what you know. Also, where is Kami Bear? Did he drink too much vodka and die? I think you'd have a lot to say about Ukraine. 
Kami Bear's uh, uncle Yuri has been keeping him away from the show because Kami uh, Bear's brand is very important for uh, 2020 election, socialism, communism. We 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 could we could bring the bear. I got him somewhere. I don't know where we we could bring the bear back. I think he's at home somewhere. Wait, there's an actual bear? Oh yeah, there was a bear. Oh, I I've never been here you've for ne- Oh, you've never met the no. bear. All right, I'm about to I bring I thought this in. was just one of your personalities. No, no, no. I mean, of course, but we might have to bring back Kami Bear. I think it's time. Uh, that's where we tell you all thank you so much for listening to the show today. Thank you for watching. If you're watching it on Pluto TV, channel 248, which you would know if you're watching it, but just in case. If you're listening to the podcast, you're like, I want to check that out. It'll be running. You can just, just turn it turn it on. You're either going to see me or Jesse Kelly pretty much. So uh, it's a win-win. So turn on Pluto TV anytime. We're going to be streaming those shows. Uh, you can check out what's going on here in the Freedom Hut. And uh, also, I keep asking you to pass the buck. Tell somebody about the podcast. We get it up at 3 Eastern every day now. You can listen on iTunes, on the iHeart app. And this podcast is awesome, so please tell people about it so they'll know it's awesome. I'll be talking to you all tomorrow. Shields high.